Dr. Loeb, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, Dr. The Galileo Project it continues to grow and form up and uh, gain members from a very diverse crowd, which includes both scientists, eminent scientists, Brian Keating, Paul Davies, many others, and then also people from the ufology community, Lou Elizondo and Chris Mellon, who's former Deputy Secretary of Defense for the United States. And so it's, it's, it's getting, it's, it's healthy, it seems so far. Now, what are you guys talking about? Now, are you planning the cameras and the, you know, what exact, how to exactly look for UAP? Well, let me first say that uh, my philosophy is to have uh, a wide tent that includes uh, people with a diverse range of expertise. That includes uh, people that uh, have gained knowledge um, while uh, studying the subject for many years or decades in different service positions and including in the government. But we are not interested in any classified data. So that's one of the guiding principles of the project. We want to conduct scientific work that is based on new data that we collect with a new set of telescopes that we assemble and we have full control over so that we know exactly what we are doing and that we analyze in a transparent way. So we have no interest in using all data that was partly classified. But on the other hand, there are a number of people that have good ideas about where to put the telescope systems and what kind of um, implications, if we do get interesting data, what kind of implications uh, such data would have in terms of the public, the society, and uh, we can benefit from their wisdom. And uh, we include also Michael Shermer, who is a skeptic in the tent, the white tent that I established. And the reason is that we will be guided by scientific evidence. So irrespective of what the the opinions of individuals are, the whole idea about scientific research is that once you have strong enough evidence, everyone would be convinced. And so if the evidence is inconclusive, you can be a skeptic. But once the evidence is conclusive, that will convince even the skeptic. That's the beauty of science. And vice versa, if we don't find anything, we are establishing a fishing expedition and we might find only sardines. These are fish that are not particularly interesting. So be it. We will just report about that. And um, we will basically clarify that we haven't found anything unusual. And of course, we need a large enough number of telescope systems so that we cover enough of the sky and have a good chance of finding something. And the other thing I wanted to mention is there is this story about a fisherman that uh, after spending several months in the sea, came back and said that he discovered a new law of nature. And that law of nature is all fish are bigger than two inches. So someone asked him, what's the size of the holes in your fishing net? And he said, two inches. So, of course, knowing your instruments, knowing the size of the holes in your fishing net allows you to make reliable statements. It's not a law of nature. It's just that some of the fish went through the holes. That's why we need to have a set of instruments that we fully understand, not a jittery camera in the cockpit of a fighter jet. You know, that's not something that you know exactly what it did during the flight. 
and not relying on humans as detectors. That's the other thing, you know, throughout history, humans were testifying various things that they saw. That cannot be sufficient for a scientific publication. You know, we want to bring this subject to the mainstream of science. And the way to do that is to use instruments that provide quantitative data and uh, will convince uh, the mainstream of science that, you know, first of all, there are objects whose nature is unusual. And second, we want to clarify what these objects are. And, uh, you know, for that, we need to get a high resolution image of some of these objects and to track their trajectory and, and see if, that can be mimicked by any human-made technologies. And of course, you know, if it ends up being a bird that we see, then, it, you know, a high-resolution image of a bird would not be of interest to me. I will be glad to give it to a zoologist that will study. If it turns out to be a drone that is made in a foreign country, that would be of interest to some uh, people in Washington, D.C. Again, I'm happy to transfer it automatically to them because it's as boring as a bird is as far as I'm concerned. But if it's something else, you know, even if it's an unusual atmospheric phenomena, that's of value for science. And that's what we will try to find. And I can get into the details of what kind of instruments we hope to put together and what kind of um, uh, approach we're taking. About that, what of radar? Will you be using a radar component with these instruments? Okay, so first of all, let me say the Galileo project has two branches. One is focused on identifying objects like Oumuamua that was very weird. It didn't look like a comet or an asteroid that we've seen before in the solar system. It was the first interstellar object that was spotted near Earth in 2017. And um, we knew that it came from outside the solar system because it moved too fast relative to the sun. And the hope is that future surveys of the sky will find more objects like Oumuamua that are weird, that, behave, that have anomalies that do not look like a comet or an asteroid. And then we hope to, de uh, to design a space mission that will bring a camera close to such an object and take a close-up photograph because a picture is worth a thousand words, or in my case, a picture is worth 66,000 words, the number of words in my book, Exoterrestrial. I wouldn't need to write the book if we had a high-resolution image. And also study such an object in great detail, try to figure out the composition of the surface of the object, the reflectance of the object, the way it looks and moves and being pushed away from the sun, if it is. So everything that we can get with instrumentation that is not too expensive is part of the, that branch of the Galileo project. And the second branch is identifying the nature of unidentified aerial phenomena. Those objects that were listed, there were 143 of them in the report from the Director of National Intelligence to Congress on the 25th of June. And uh, we want to figure out what these objects are because apparently the government uh, was unable to do that. And these objects were seen by multiple instruments. And we, I should say that the public uh, is uh, aware only of the tip of the iceberg, probably, because there is a lot of data that must be classified. I haven't seen it. I don't want to see it so that my hands as a scientist will not be tied. As I said before, the Galileo project is about new data that will be available and open to the public, collected by instruments that we get off the shelf. The 
classified data was derived from classified instruments and that's why it's classified. It's not so much that the data itself is a concern to the government uh, in terms of uh, releasing it. It's more that it would reveal the nature of the sensors that were used to collect it, which are classified. So we are basically uh, solving that problem by buying off the shelf instruments, looking at the sky, which is not classified by the way, because astronomers were looking at the sky for a long time. And the difference from astronomers is that in this project, the Galileo project, we will track objects moving close to us across the sky. Whereas if a bird flies above a, an astronomical observatory, the, the astronomers just ignore it. We will track it. And we will look at the entire sky all the time. We will not look at a very narrow patch of the sky the way astronomers do routinely. So when you ask astronomers and they say, oh, we haven't seen anything unusual, you know, that's, that's because the strategy for following objects that are nearby was not tuned for this purpose. They were not able to track rare objects that are flying nearby. And we are designing instruments for that purpose for the first time. And the Galileo project is the first team of scientists, of astronomers. We have almost a hundred people by now in the project that came together and are funded to build telescope systems that would accomplish this task, you know, scientifically, collecting scientific quality data. If we're not talking about cell phone data or, you know, which is always fuzzy because the aperture on a cell phone is small. So I was asked, for example, at Harvard by the administration, whether this uh, activity is part of my day job as an astronomer. And I thought about it and said, uh, yes, I do think so, because we are collecting data with telescopes and interpreting it. And that's what astronomers do. That's what I did for decades. And the only difference is that these objects are nearby. They are close to us. But there is no limit to how close an object can be for it to be of astronomical interest. We look at the sun. We look at meteors. We look at asteroids. We look at comets. You know, these are nearby objects. And as long as they give us information, potentially, about something far away, that's a fair game. And that's part of my day job. And the administrators agree with that. So I'm, you know, I have a fund that uh, is uh, uh, thanks to the uh, donations of individuals. Uh, by now, we have uh, almost $2 million in it. Um, the project started uh, just a few months ago. And um, th there are commitments for more funds from some individuals that are interested in, in giving us more. And my hope is to get 10 times more than that, uh, the level of tens of millions. Of course, if we want to launch a space mission, that would require tens of millions to maybe hundreds of millions, depending on how ambitious we are. And for that, I hope to collaborate with either NASA or SpaceX or Blue Origins just because we will learn something new if we weren't after interstellar objects, you know, even if those objects are nitrogen icebergs, a proposal that was made, or hydrogen iceberg, another proposal that was made by astronomers, or a dust bunny, a third proposal that was made by astronomers, even if it's of natural origin of this type, something that we've never seen before, which was all the proposals that were made were something that we've never seen before, we will learn something new by imaging it, figuring out that there are nurseries of these objects that we've never imagined, even if they are natural. So my point is, it's a win-win proposition. 
if we invest this money, we will learn something new, even if the origin is natural. And by the way, just recently, there was the Astro 2020 Decadal Survey. And in it, there are projects that cost more than that, like half a billion dollars to search for the polarization pattern of the cosmic microwave background that represents gravitational waves from the early universe. Now, so far, there are only upper limits on that, and we will invest half a billion dollars if if, uh, we follow that path in a search for something that we may not find. We don't know if we will find it because so far we haven't found it. And my point is, we're investing half a billion dollars in a search for something that we don't know exists. And at the same time, you know, if we were to do this search for interstellar objects and getting more information about them, we know that they exist. We found one in 2017 that doesn't look like an asteroid or a comet that we've seen before. So we are likely to find more. And by investing even less money, we will learn something new for sure. And I think it's a win-win proposition. And I very much hope to partner with uh, an organization that can fund the space uh, mission for that purpose. Now, biases and fear. We live in a situation where there is a taboo against the discussion of alien life. And this taboo ranges from SETI. Remember, a, a certain U.S. senator was able to get SETI defunded by NASA. Now NASA's back interested, but they actually had to rename it and say, not SETI, but looking for techno signatures. And it took that renaming and two decades of rethink to even get it back on the table. And then when you get into the UAP phenomenon, the taboo is much worse because there you have people making, as they say, extraordinary claims, but they may not be. For all we know, we are part of a population of alien civilizations in the Milky Way. And that's actually a scientific thing to say because we always look for a population. But in this case, people are very, very resistant to it. And I know you have (laughs) met much resistance in, in looking into this. So my question is this. Do you think there is a deep-seated fear of finding an alien civilization so close? Well, I think it all stems from our ego, the resistance to this idea. Because when I teach my freshman seminar at Harvard, the first thing I tell the students is in the class that is that half of them are below the median. That's a statistical fact. The median is defined such that half of the people are below it. That's the definition. Now they have a hard time accepting it because they all feel that they belong to the top few percent. My point is it's very likely that we as a technological civilization is somewhere in the middle of this bell-shaped distribution of technological civilizations in terms of our accomplishments. You know, we, we are probably not the smartest kid on the block. And we should recognize that possibility. We should be modest. You know, the one thing I learned over decades of practicing astronomy is that the universe teaches us to be modest, to be curious in terms of trying to figure out where we came from, and to be calm because all of our ambitions of getting honors here on Earth, they are meaningless in the big scheme of things. Before we are born and after we die, we basically need nothing from nobody. We don't need anything. And we go back to this 
peaceful state that the rest of the universe is in, we are very small players in that play. First of all, we are not at the center of the stage. Second, this play has been going on for 13.8 billion years. We just came at the end. And we live for very, a very short time. You know, that there used to be this tradition for the Romans where the leader was celebrated after winning an important battle. He had a slave behind his back telling him, don't forget that you are mortal so that he will not be uh, too impressed by the excesses of the celebration. And that's something we should always keep in mind. You know, we, we live for such a short time. Let's focus on substance. Let's not focus on how many likes we get on Twitter, how many honors we, we get, whether we demonstrate that we are smart and whether we gain the appreciation of other people. That's really irrelevant. What really matters is addressing our curiosity. And if you ask kids, what is the question that excites them? You know, are we alone in the universe? Are we the smartest kids in, on, the, on the cosmic block? You know, that excites everyone. And somehow when these kids become adults, they push it aside. They ridicule the subject as if we are not supposed to discuss it. Now, the problem with that is it's a circular argument because if you don't fund the search, if you are not checking through your window whether you have neighbors, you will never find them. If you are, for another way to think of this is the solar system is just like a mailbox. You know, we may have packages in the mailbox, but if we say, no, there is probably nothing in the mailbox, we shouldn't even check it, we shouldn't walk to the mailbox, then you will never find the extraordinary evidence that everyone is quoting. Everyone is quoting Carl Sagan. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And guess what? Nobody has the time to search or to fund the search for extraordinary evidence. So then it's a very lazy proposition to say, oh, I don't have extraordinary evidence, therefore I should not even check it. I should not even fund it. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And when scientists say, we don't have extraordinary evidence, therefore we shouldn't discuss it, that's exactly the opposite attitude to what it's supposed to be. If we see something anomalous like on Oumuamua or we hear about UAP, which the government talks about, the most conservative organization, that should intrigue scientists to say, okay, we want now to get to collect scientific evidence that will clarify what we are talking about, whether these are really unusual objects or whether they are natural objects that we haven't understood until now. Let's just collect the data. People in the public care about it. The government cares about it. How can the scientific community ridicule the subject? To me, it's exactly the opposite proposition to what we are supposed to follow. And uh, just think about Fermi's paradox. Again, another thing that everyone uh, is mentioning, Fermi's paradox was formulated 70 years ago by Enrico Fermi, who went to lunch with colleagues at Los Alamos and said, we all think that there might be extraterrestrials, but we don't see them. So where is everybody? Now, this is very presumptuous. It's like someone, you know, sitting on the sofa at home and saying, I don't hear a knock on my door. Therefore, I don't have neighbors. Well, you have to ask the question, how frequently is someone knocking on your door? You know, like you could have neighbors with nobody knocking on your door. The recorded history on Earth 
is just 10,000 years old. And that's one million of the age of the earth. So what's the chance that just when Enrico Fermi is asking the question, someone would appear and show up just during the last century in a way that Enrico Fermi would recognize? The point is they may show up with vehicles that are smaller than the size of a football field. In that case, no telescope on earth could have recognized them if they passed within the distance of the earth from the sun. So the first telescope that was able to to recognize an object that is the size of a football field passing within the orbit of the earth around the sun is pan stars. And guess what? After a couple of years of surveying the sky, it found Oumuamua. And there might be objects much smaller than Oumuamua that we haven't found yet. They're passing through our fishing net and they're smaller than the holes in the fishing net. So the whole purpose of the Galileo project is to say, let's let's collect the the evidence that would allow us to break loose of these shackles that we put upon ourselves. That by by claiming we need extraordinary evidence and not searching for the evidence, that's a very lazy proposition. Let's, Let's be proactive. Let's try and find the evidence. And by the way, we've been searching for the nature of dark matter for 40 years. We invested hundreds of millions of dollars. That was a search in the dark for specific types of dark matter, most of the matter in the universe. We don't know what it is after 40 years. And now if we are, if we will start now to search for technological equipment from extraterrestrial civilizations near Earth, and we will invest hundreds of millions of dollars in the search, and we will find nothing for 40 years, we will be exactly at the same point as dark matter searches are right now. So how can dark matter search be part of the mainstream of science, whereas the search for technological equipment is ridiculed, given the fact that we witnessed Oumuamua? That is something I cannot understand. There are a couple things to point out here. First of all, dark matter, as it's described, we we see gravity. We see its effects on large-scale structures of galaxies. But ultimately, it's a claim of invisible material something you can't see that can pass through walls and basically not interact any way except gravitationally. But that's quite a wild claim when you really get down to it, the practicality of it. And since we can't see any real indicator of it other than gravity, it could just simply be that we have a bad understanding of gravity and we already know that. We already know that we have a a very, very woefully incomplete understanding of gravity. Yeah, that that is definitely a possibility that we should keep in mind until we find a particle that uh, we've never recognized. And my point is, you know, that's a search in the dark. And uh, we were willing to search in the dark for 40 years in this context. In the case of Oumuamua, we saw an object that is unusual and everyone poo-pooed, ridiculed the possibility that it may represent a technological relic. And my point is, a year ago, in September 2020, there was another object discovered by the same telescope in Hawaii, PANSTARS, that uh, shared the same qualities as Oumuamua. It exhibited an excess push away from the sun by reflecting sunlight, and it had no cometary tail, so it couldn't have been the rocket effect that is pushing it. And it was given the name 2020 SO. And then a few weeks later, the astronomers who discovered it realized by extrapolating the trajectory back in time, that it actually came from Earth. It was a rocket booster that was launched in 1966, and it had thin walls. 
And what that demonstrates is that we can tell the difference between a rock and an artificial object by the way it moves. And that's what we did in the case of Oumuamua, and that's what we did with 2020SO. And the second point to keep in mind is an object can be thin, not because it's a sail. This rocket booster was not designed to be a sail, uh, sailing on light. It was just thin for a different purpose. And the same may be true about Oumuamua. So my point is, we already found an artificial object that we produced. The question is, who produced Oumuamua? This plays into other questions. This is something I worry about. I interview a lot of scientists and I talk to a lot of SETI scientists and things like that. And there have been strange signals over the years that seem to have been of technological origin, the wow signal being the the best known example. Do you think that in the state of science today, if we saw a techno signature, no matter what it is, whether it was Umuma or UAP or a radio signal, do you think that science as a whole, even if we saw it, we would miss it and we would just dismiss it? No, if we collect the good enough data, it would not be possible to miss it because the analogy I draw is with a, a caveman fa- fa- finding a cell phone. The caveman will initially say that the cell phone is just a rock of a type that we've never seen before. Just like astronomer said about Oumuamua, that it's a rock of a type we've never seen before. It may be a hydrogen iceberg, a nitrogen iceberg, or a dust bunny. Okay. Now, If the caveman would throw the rock away or the cell phone away, uh, that would be the end of the story. And that would be uh, similar to to us saying, it must be natural, forget about it, business as usual. But if the caveman would be curious and will press a button on the cell phone and record his voice, press another button and record his image, then he would realize that it's not a rock. It's something else. And so the moral of this story is that when you get enough evidence, nobody would be able to dispute it. So for example, OSIRIS-REx landed on the asteroid Bennu. That was a space mission that got a very high resolution image of Bennu and we could see that it's a rock. And it actually took a sample from the surface that we will bring back to earth in 2023. At that level, if you land on an object, you could press buttons on it. You can tell that it has screws and bolts rather than it's a piece of hydrogen iceberg or nitrogen iceberg. It should be possible to tell. And whoever would deny such scientific evidence would not be a reasonable person. So my point is we can collect data that will imply the nature of unidentified objects beyond a reasonable doubt. We are in the 21st century. Some of us are behaving as if we are in the Middle Ages, that you know it's just a matter of our preconception. And for example, there was a paper published in Nature Astronomy magazine by a philosopher half a year ago, claiming that Oumuamua must be natural based on philosophical reasoning. And I thought to myself, haven't we learned something over the past four centuries since the days of Galileo, when philosophers knew that the sun moves around the earth and they didn't need to look through Galileo's telescope? And then obviously 
they were proven wrong because nowadays we plan space missions based on the notion that the earth moves around the sun. So these philosophers are not remembered anymore. They're completely irrelevant. If we have repeated that experience today, they would have canceled Galileo on social media. They would have ridiculed him. But reality doesn't care about social media. It is whatever it is. You know, the earth didn't stop moving around the sun just because these philosophers made that statement. And the point is, whether we have neighbors or not, will not depend on how much this idea is liked on social media and whether bloggers ridicule it or not. That's completely irrelevant. What we need to do is try to collect the evidence. Look out through the windows rather than assuming that we know the answer in advance. You know, one thing I, one of the most vivid memories I have from my childhood was sitting at dinner and asking a difficult question. And then the adults in the room would pretend that they know the answer to it. And they would pretend that they have much greater knowledge than they actually have. And that was obvious to me. That was the good experience. The bad experience was when the adults in the room would dismiss the question and say, this is ridiculous. We don't want even to discuss it. And the reason they would do that is because they didn't know the answer. And for the same reason, when you find scientists ridiculing this discussion about an artificial origin for a muamua or objects like it, you know, that is driven by the same reason that they want to appear as experts, that their body of knowledge, everything they know already, should explain everything that we find in the future. So anything that looks unusual, that looks anomalous, bothers them. They don't want to discuss it. They don't want to deal with it because they want to demonstrate that they are experts, that they can understand anything that we find based on the knowledge from the past. And this way they can get honors, awards, recognition, if they were to admit that they are missing something important about reality, you know, they would lose some of their reputation. And so that's a natural tendency of so-called experts to behave like the adults in the room and say, this is a ridiculous question. We don't want even to discuss it. We need extraordinary evidence before we even engage in this discussion. But guess what? If you ridicule this question, you will never get that extraordinary evidence but that's, that serves their purpose because they can get honors, awards, and, you know, they live their life without being threatened by anomalies. That's not the way science should be done. If a kid sees that the emperor has no clothes, we should listen to the kid. And the emperor might not have any clothes. And so if we see anomalies in the sky, we should not be worried about our reputation as experts. We should say, wow, that's intriguing. That's exciting. Let's try to collect more evidence. That's exactly the nature of the Galileo project. So I refuse to surrender my curiosity from the time I was a kid because I had this experience in the dinner table. I don't care about the adults in the room. I just want to find the answer based on evidence. We should get into responsibility and the question surrounding that. If we have poo-pooed and ignored and downplayed the presence of an alien civilization in our atmosphere with us for the last 70 years. And it turns out that Galileo finds compelling evidence. We won't call it extraordinary. We'll simply say compelling evidence 
of the presence of an alien civilization on this planet with us than a ball has been dropped bigger than any in history because it could simply be that if that's the case, then we have to start looking at, for me, paradox solutions like the zoo hypothesis or that they're here to police us and keep us from developing certain technologies and things like that. So to find such a thing or even find a hint of such a thing, all of the awards and all of that, the Nobel Prizes get melted down because we have dropped the ball on an unbelievable scale if the UAP are of alien origin or even just something we haven't thought of yet, whatever uh, they may be. I should first say that the reports of the past may be a mixed bag. There may be, you know, maybe most of them have some mundane explanations, but that's not really the point. It's sufficient to have one unusual object of extraterrestrial technological origin for it to, to have major implications for our future. And we have a subgroup within the Galileo project that uh, is discussing the societal implications. Currently, we are not prepared to respond to that. You know, the fundamental question is, what is the intent of any equipment that we find? And my thinking is that the biological creatures like ourselves are not really designed to survive in space. You know, we were selected by Darwinian evolution to live on the surface of Earth. Uh, and if we go to space within a year or a few years, unprotected, then our brain will be damaged uh, uh, at a very high level from cosmic rays that will impact us. And we just wouldn't survive. And just protecting us uh, is a major task. Moreover, the travel between stars will take, you know, if, if we use uh, existing chemical rockets, will take... Um, uh, 50,000 years to the nearest star and much more than that, millions of years to other stars. And, you know, we will have to go through many generations of uh, people on any spacecraft that we send. So I don't think biological creatures are really suitable for space travel between stars. And the solution is obvious. We are now developing artificial intelligence systems uh, that drive cars Within a decade, they will outsmart us in many ways. And you can imagine sending AI astronauts to space. That means sending a system that is autonomous, doesn't need any guidance from us, as if we are sending our technological kids. I mean, we can train them at an early phase, just like we, we educate our kids at a young age, and then you send them to the world and they learn from experience. In the case of AI systems, machine learning. And then you just provide them with your guiding principles, with a blueprint of how you want them to behave and what goals you want them to achieve. And you hope for the best. You know, with kids, you don't always get what you want. Sometimes they do things that you, you do not approve. And the same will happen with AI systems. But the idea is, since they're made of electronics, they, they could survive in space for millions or billions of years. So AI astronauts, the way I see it, is really the future because also the communication across interstellar distances takes a long time. You cannot ask them to wait for guidance from the senders. And so if we can imagine sending AI astronauts that will be autonomous to interstellar distances, perhaps another civilization that is slightly more mature than we are technologically 
have done that already. And if you equip those systems with 3D printing, they could in principle replicate themselves using the raw materials they find on other planets. And then you get to a situation where you can fill up the entire Milky Way galaxy with probes that have AI systems on them within a billion years. And most of the stars in the Milky Way formed billions of years before the sun. So the fundamental question is, do we live in a reality that includes those probes near us or not? And if these probes are small, we wouldn't have detected them easily. And so the only way to find out is by searching the sky. And that's what the Galileo project aims to do. But if I had to guess, I would think that we're dealing with AI systems, if they are intelligent. And of course, to interpret their intent, we might need our own AI systems. And it's sort of like relying on your kids to figure out the meaning of content that you find on the internet because they're more computer savvy. So we will use our own AI systems to interpret their AI systems and they might outsmart us. And I'm just hopeful that we will not be in a situation similar to the Trojan horse story where the citizens of Troy were happy to bring in the Trojan horse into their city. And we all know the consequences. That's astonishing. Now, we would have to, in order to interpret an alien artificial intelligence within our star system with us, we may have to invent our own artificial intelligence in order to understand the alien artificial intelligence. But that gets scary because what if our artificial intelligence sympathizes with the alien and not us? <laughs> or, or, it, or, it, or it launches itself into space, figures out a way to do that, and goes and joins the alien artificial intelligence, and they just go off into the <laughs> galaxy together, and we never know the answer to anything. And well, we it's just... like it's just like having your kids marry someone and leaving home. You know, that's uh, I wouldn't worry too much about it. But I'm primarily frustrated by the response of the scientific community to this subject. But I'm hopeful, I'm optimistic, because I think that in the not too distant future, AI systems will start analyzing scientific data. And when you start having AI scientists replace human scientists, then I'm much more hopeful because they will not be necessarily swayed by their prejudice, by their arrogance, by their ego, they would, if they see an object that does, does not share the qualities of comets or asteroids like Oumuamua, but shares the qualities of 2020 SO, that is an artificial object that we produce, a rocket booster that we produce, they would say, that's interesting, look, there is an object in the sky that behaves like 2020 SO that we produced, but doesn't look like comets or asteroids we've seen before. Therefore, it could be artificial in origin. Let's collect more data. That's the response I would expect from an AI system that looks objectively at the data without prejudice. Instead, what do I hear from my colleagues? A colleague of mine that worked on rocks in the solar system for decades heard about Oumuamua, and the first thing he said was, Oumuamua is so weird, I wish it never existed. And that shows to you the weakness of human nature. But if an AI system would look at the same data, I'm much more hopeful. So when science will be handled 
by AI systems. I very much hope that it, it, its rate of discoveries will be advanced. And I participated in a forum with a, re- a relatively young person who said that he is quite worried about the future use of AI systems because they may behave in ways that we do not approve. They may deviate from what we hope. And I said to him, well, you know, I raised two daughters. You are speaking just like someone who didn't have kids because when you raise your kids, you never, you, you never have a guarantee that they will behave the way you want them to behave. You are just trying to educate them at a young age and then send them to the world. And of course, in some cases, they don't do the right things, you know, but you should be, we should be relaxed about these technological kids of ours, which I call AI systems. We should just try to educate them well early on in their, in their evolution and, and then send them off to the world. And I'm hopeful, just like I'm hopeful about the young generation of today, even though they do things that are different from the things we did when we were at their age, I always think that they would do better than us. And the same is true about AI systems, being scientists, being astronauts. And I have no problem whatsoever thinking about a future in which we send technological monuments into the universe that will carry the flame of our existence. And these would be AI systems that will go places. Just to give you an example to contrast that with what we did so far. So far, for example, we sent the New Horizons spacecraft to Pluto. And on the spacecraft, we put 30 grams of ashes from the body of Clyde Tumbaugh, who discovered Pluto, to commemorate his discovery. So to celebrate the person, what we did is take his DNA and burn it up and put the ashes on the spacecraft. Now, the ashes are no different from cigarette ashes. They carry no genetic information whatsoever. And we put it to celebrate that person. If an extraterrestrial finds this, they would laugh at our primitive ritual of burning up the information about a person that we want to commemorate. That makes no scientific sense whatsoever. They cannot reconstruct Clyde Tambaugh from these ashes. If we wanted to maintain some memory of Clyde Tambaugh, we would put his DNA in electronic form on the spacecraft, or we would put a stem cell on the spacecraft. And uh, I asked the principal investigator of the New Horizons program, Alan Stern, who is a member of the Galileo Project about it. And he said that uh, putting a stem cell on New Horizons would have been a bureaucratic nightmare in NASA. But nevertheless, my point is, it would have been better to put an electronic record of Clyde Tambaugh on the spacecraft. Now, my hope is, you know, in order not to embarrass ourselves uh, by the extraterrestrials finding new horizons first, not to give them a bad impression at first sight, we should send a spacecraft that moves faster than new horizon, that will catch up with it and and go farther than new horizon, that um, will carry, for example, an AI astronaut. And then they will think good things about it and say, oh, well, they seem to be like an intelligent species out there on Earth before they get the ashes delivered to them. Perhaps I think somewhere, somewhere in someone's closet, as I recall, there sits Einstein's brain, 
And so if we were going to send somebody a representative of humanity's DNA out, perhaps it should be Einstein. Any thoughts on that? I would be happy with that uh, choice. But as I said, my hope is with the future. I always uh, think that the future can be better than the past. So even though we are very proud of Einstein, my guess is that in the future, we will have an AI scientist that would do better than Einstein in the sense of using an unprecedented amount of information that Einstein's brain was not able to digest. Using that and finding correlations and patterns in the huge data set that uh, provide us with a new law of nature or a new understanding of reality. You know, that's something that AI systems might be able to do that humans were never able to do because they cannot process such a huge amount of data in their brains. So my hope is that in the future, we will have a super Einstein AI system and it would make more sense to send that on a spacecraft only for the reason that not not, not, not to brag about our accomplishment, but also to, to sort of send an image of what we have here on earth that is flattering to us, that that implies that we existed and we achieved an important milestone, that it's not just the biology that came out of a soup of chemicals on one habitable planet out of so many, you know, we, we created a completely new thing out of the materials we found on this earth that exceeds our abilities, that can do better than any human. And to me, you know, that that would be the best monument that we can send to space. You know, at Harvard University, I see very often statues or paintings of past presidents or deans or important people that wanted to preserve a physical image of the way they looked during their life as if that would signify some something important and will maintain their longevity, you know, maintain their memory. That all makes very little sense because, you know, within a billion years, the sun uh, will uh, uh, boil off all the oceans on Earth and burn up the surface of Earth. So all of these monuments will go away and probably even earlier than that. And if you wanted a monument that lasts for billions of years, that outlasts the sun, you want to send an AI system into space that will travel between stars. And that makes much more sense. Another thing that doesn't make sense is bragging. You know, showing off in space is an oxymoron. What um, some wealthy individuals did recently by lifting their body uh, by 1% of the Earth radius using their wealth, you know, that makes very little sense. You can't be proud of that. That's not something to brag about because the size of the universe is 10 to the power 19 times bigger than the radius of the Earth. So you're lifting your body by 1% of the Earth radius. That's not a great accomplishment. You know, that's nothing to be proud of. If you were to send an AI system across the galaxy, that would be an impressive feat. And given that we have so much time left in this universe, the universe is, is still young. And given that we have so much time, there is the option, too, of intergalactic proliferation of information, you might say, by AI. And a computer does not care about the passage of time, nor does it seem likely it would care about 
relativistic speeds and moving into the future because it has no past it wants to go back to like a human would. You know, we want to go back to our family and everything, but if we traveled at relativistic speeds, we wouldn't be able to do that because we would be in the future. But a machine doesn't care. And neither does it uh, just the passage of time. You know, a machine that can self-repair and keep itself going can spend 100,000 years crossing, you know, one quarter of the galaxy or something like that. It's only 100,000 light years across. And when you you look at those vast timescales, everything shrinks, at least according to the galaxy. Right. So, Uh, again, that is an advantage of the machine over the human in that it can live indefinitely and back itself up and have multiple copies and things like that. Whereas we really can't, and we only live 80, 90 years. So to us going to Alpha Centauri, our Proxima Centauri, to take a look, you know, is beyond one human lifetime. But a machine, say Starshot, these machines, little machines that are being driven by sales, they don't care. (laughs) They don't care about the passage of time at all. So there is an inherent advantage to creating a machine that can go and do your exploration for you. And we already do that. We already do that. New Horizons and all of these were robots. And we sometimes selectively, like we'll go to the moon and stand on it. But fundamentally, you explore it robotically because it is much, much more advantageous and easy and in some cases more capable, but although there's nothing as good as feet on the ground for exploring something. But there are some places that are just too much and too expensive. So it's it makes sense that an alien civilization would send a machine. And that was the whole idea be, behind these ideas of John von Neumann's self-replicating probes and the Fermi paradox itself, because the galaxy is well old enough for someone to have done this. Now, this gets back to our earlier point in that when when people throw out ideas about things not found in nature to explain Oumuamua, dust bunnies, things like that, things that we have never seen any indication could exist or survive in interstellar space. Yet the one thing is, is that in the case of an alien civilization having done it, we have an example of that ourselves. We self-prove that it's possible in the universe to have an intelligent species. So is it really that far out there to say that something could be alien made as opposed to a nitrogen iceberg that doesn't seem likely at all to be able to survive getting blasted off its parent body? Yeah, I I, I don't think so. I think we should consider all possibilities, put them on the table. And if we get more data, we we learn something new no matter what, because in all cases, we will learn about nurseries of interstellar objects that we've never imagined. And just think about the implications if it turns out to be artificial. I think the problem is our ego. What the universe taught me, at least, is a sense of modesty. You know, we should be humble. And that comes in two flavors. First of all, you should not assume that you know the answer in advance. You should collect data and figure out what happens. And second, you shouldn't be jealous of your kids. In this case, technological kids. We should not think that we are the pinnacle of creation, that we are the smartest. And therefore, first of all, there are no other kid on our cosmic block that could outsmart us. And second, that we should be going to space rather than small AI systems that we produce because 
My point is our technological kids may be better than us. And moreover, we might not be the smartest kid on the block. And the way to find out is to search for those AI systems that were sent by others, maybe billions of years ago. And then... Uh, Just think about the Perseverance rover. It's currently on the surface of Mars seeking evidence for microbial life in the past of Mars. And of course, if we find uh, primitive life, we would have no problem with it because we are more intelligent than it. And uh, we would feel proud of ourselves. You know, we found something new, and but it doesn't really threaten our ego. But imagine the same rover bumping against the wreckage of a spaceship that represents technologies that we do not possess. That would be a blow to our ego if we find that. And my point is, we would much rather, if you ask most scientists, they would much rather not confront that situation. Because if you look at physics over the past century, by doing laboratory experiments, we discovered the laws that control the behavior of elementary particles like electrons, atoms. These, these particles are just slaves to the laws of nature. They do exactly what the laws tell them to do. And we found these laws of physics that gives us a boost to our ego because not only we understand how these particles are behaving, so that's, uh, that shows that we are very intelligent, but also these particles have no free will. If someone tried to formulate an equation that will forecast what we will do in the future, and we knew about this forecast, we would behave differently. We would violate the prediction of that equation. So we feel that we are superior relative to these atoms and electrons because we are able to decide. We have a, some sense of free will, some consciousness, that allows us to decide in a way that is not necessarily predictable. Uh, and so doing physics is a boost to our ego in two ways. And then we also find microbes, we feel superior relative to them because we are much more intelligent. We also feel superior relative to animals. You know, we eat them, we put them in cages. We feel superior relative to them because we feel that we are much more intelligent. And the next level is that some humans try to feel superior relative to other humans. You find that throughout human history, and that's the worst disease. Because if you look at the Second World War, uh, the Nazi regime triggered the death of 75 million people. That was 3% of the world population in 1940. It's 20 times more than the number of deaths triggered by COVID 19. And that was just the result of a group of people trying to feel superior relative to other people. So what you find is that the ego plays a central role in human activities, including in the academic community, including in science, which is very unfortunate because in the context of science, we are missing on discoveries as a result of that by people pretending to be experts, ridiculing any discussions on things that they don't know the answer to, and dismissing anomalies because anomalies raise doubt about their knowledge. And this is not the way that science should be handled. And my hope is that AI scientists would do better. But to run a scenario by you, and this is where it gets scary, 
if we find that this civilization that has sent a robotic entity across space-time to get here and went through all of that trouble, there must be a motive to do that. Now, this could be something so simple as science. They, you know, they're, they're curious. You know, they're, they're anthropologists. They, they're like, well, we see evidence of, of an advanced biosphere on this planet, so we're going to send something there. You know, it's starting to exhibit weird oxygen levels and things like that. But maybe eventually, and perhaps it's the rule in the universe, that that produces a civilization. So they just put a monitoring probe to simply learn. But it could also be something more nefarious. And it could be that the moment you create that AI to try to figure out the AI that's sitting in your solar system, you've committed a crime according to the laws of the civilizations of the galaxy that they have agreed on. So you have a police action scenario where the whole presence of this thing is to monitor, but not have contact until you get its attention, just like the police. You know, you sit on your porch, the police pass by. But the moment you try to steal your neighbor's barbecue, it intervenes. So if we were in that situation where it's it actually serves some sort of function like that, and it is far superior to us technologically, that means the zoo hypothesis is automatically the solution to the Fermi paradox. Does Do you fear that or do you say... We're nowhere near close enough to even know if that's the case, and we should just see what comes because it's reality, whatever it is. Right. Do you see that, or do you think? And, and again, that deep-seated fear. Do you think people fear this idea of a more advanced civilization being that close? Yeah. So I wrote an essay about that uh, in Medium uh, recently uh, about the protocol and for dealing with a discovery of let's say, AI systems nearby. And, you know, we don't know their intent and it's similar to cracking uh, the Enigma code, uh, for example, during the Second World War by Alan Turing. And, you know, it may be a task uh, of linguists, of AI systems, figuring out the intent of those. But my approach is we should first approach it in a passive way, just collecting information about those objects in a passive way, not uh, trying to engage with them, just seeing what kind of information they are seeking. How do they respond to human actions on, on the globe? And then we need to have a discussion whether to engage with them, whether to communicate, whether to do something. And of course, that would have to weigh in all the implications of engage engagement. And But I do think the first approach should be passive. And indeed, the Galileo project will use only passive uh, sensors. We will not transmit even radio waves. We will not uh, do the standard radar uh, search. Um, so we will have an optical telescope that looks at the entire sky with a fisheye camera. We will have uh, infrared sensors that cover the entire sky all the time. And we will have radio sensors that detect the, any radio transmission or any reflection of uh, radio waves that exist otherwise of uh, objects of interest. And an audio system that detects uh, any sound waves coming from these objects as they move in the atmosphere. So all of this will be collected in a passive way uh, without any without sending any, anything in the direction of the objects of interest. And I think that should be the first approach. And of course, what we do afterwards should be an international matter. It's not a, a matter of national security if 
the label doesn't imply that these objects were made here on earth or if they behave in ways that we cannot reproduce with our technologies. So um, this is a very important uh, question that you, you brought up, uh, but I think we first need to find <laughs> that such things exist and understand what they're doing. Uh, or at least how do they, what kind of information they're seeking, where are they, and what kind of response they have to what we do here on earth, unrelated to them. And um, then we can discuss it and make a decision. It has to be decided uh, by an international forum. But that in itself could have a benefit because Ronald Reagan once pointed this out. And as I recall, one anecdote, I don't know if it's true or not, but he asked Gorbachev, if the United States got attacked by an alien civilization, would the Soviet Union back us? And he said, no doubt about it. So you have when you have a global security threat, then hopefully everybody comes together and starts putting aside some differences. And I right. think I think that's one thing that we could say with certainty that we would do. If we had an outside threat, we would suddenly become the human species and it, we, we would slow down on the petty squabbling of countries. Do you think that's, well, real, that's the case? Well, I'm an optimist. And um, my hope is that um, if we find that an advanced civilization is out there that is more advanced and we are more intelligent than we are, that there is a smarter kid on the block, then all of the small differences between us will become meaningless. And um, trying to feel superior relative to each other, to other humans, would make, make very little sense. The, the Nazi doctrine will make very little sense. Here is a civilization that far more advanced than us. My hope is we will treat each other with respect as equal members of the human species. That will be the first effect. So the first effect will be on how the, we deal with each other within the human population. And then, of course, there is the question of how to communicate with them. And my view is we will learn from them because they might have answers to questions to which we, we don't have an answer. For example, we don't know what happened before the Big Bang. We don't know what the dark matter is. We don't know what's inside a black hole. So to give you an example in the context of the Big Bang, of course, there are religious uh, scripts that say the universe was created by some divine entity. And then there are scientific ideas, such as that the universe was created out of nothing from a fluctuation of the vacuum, or that it was, um, it's a cyclic universe. There was an initial phase where it contracted, and then there was a bounce, and it expanded, and it will contract again and expand again in many cycles, infinite number of cycles. And there is another possibility that I pointed out in a Scientific American essay recently, and that is, it's possible that once we develop an understanding of how to unify quantum mechanics and gravity, we will understand how to make a baby universe in the laboratory. And it's possible that our universe was created in the laboratory of an advanced scientific culture. And in that case, if that culture created our universe. And in our universe, there is what I call a type A civilization of that quality that can create baby universes. It could lead to another universe being created. And you can have multiple generations, one after the other, having babies that, that make new babies and so forth, just like humans, you know, just like a, a chicken lays an egg and out of the egg uh, hatches a chicken and so forth. And you can go through that, those cycles indefinitely. So 
It's an interesting possibility that perhaps our universe was created in the laboratory of an advanced civilization. And in that case, what we call God in religious scripts is actually an advanced scientific civilization. So the, the two concepts, uh, one of which is religious and the other, which is a unification of quantum mechanics and gravity in the context of the future of science, the two may come together. It's true that uh, someone created the universe, but it was done in the laboratory of an advanced scientific culture. And of course, the way to find out is if we ever meet such a culture, which I call type A civilization, you see, we are type C because we are just harvesting sunlight, you know, whatever nature gave us, whatever the astrophysical environment gave us, we're using it. And in fact, we, we might be even called type D civilization because we are destroying our habitat. We don't preserve our climate. So our grade is somewhere between C and D, I would say. And then you can imagine a type B civilization that creates a platform that makes it independent of its host star. So it can create anywhere. It doesn't need the host star in order to survive. So it has a nuclear reactor that makes its own uh, energy and, and, and maintains a, a habitat that that civilization can live in, irrespective of whether it's next to a star. So that's type B that is independent of the astrophysical circumstances. And then type A is a civilization that can create the conditions that led to its existence, including creating a baby universe in the laboratory. Now, my last question for you, Dr. Loeb, is this. Now, you're going to appear with Bill Nelson and soon at a uh, presentation, and there's all kinds of talk by, by Nelson, but also many others. You know, the SETI Institute is putting on a, uh, on a forum soon regarding whether UAP are worthy of scientific attention and things like that. Now, you once told me early on that you were going to throw yourself on the barbed wire regarding this question, and like a soldier in the Israeli army, you're going to open the way for others to, to push through. Do you think that the indications now are, is, is that you were successful? Because there are more people talking about it than there ever was before. So the key is not people. As I said, I don't care how many likes I have on Twitter, and I don't use humans as detectors. Because humans are often... Um, uh, motivated by other reasons. You know, they are motivated by their ego. They, they uh, have wishful thinking. They, they do not always report what is right. And um, the way to figure out what's, what reality is like is to use instruments that provide us with quantitative information. And that's the scientific method that Galileo Galilei founded, that philosophers at his time resisted because they thought they have a good idea about the sun moving around the earth. And all of modern science was based on Galileo's approach, even though he was put in house arrest at the time. And today he would have been canceled on social media. So my point is, if we follow the scientific method that led to all the advances that we benefit from in our daily lives, you know, including the navigation systems in our cell phones, you know, that those rely on Einstein's general theory of relativity, which was verified through observations of the universe and uh, the, the solar system and many other, and, and most recently gravitational waves from black holes that collide at the edge of the universe, and uh, as well as 
uh, an image of the shadow of a black hole. So the point is, we can learn about reality, new things, if we pay attention to evidence rather than to our prejudice, rather than to our notions. And it's a learning experience. And the key for us to learn is to stay modest and recognize the fact that everything we know is just an island in an ocean of ignorance. So if it's not about us showing off that we are smart, then instead of being preoccupied with extra dimensions, the string theory landscape, the multiverse, all of these ideas that are constructed such that whoever writes about them appears to be smart, you know, just let's forget about those. You know, these ideas have no verification, have no substantiation by experimental data. Instead, let's work on things, on questions that we can address by collecting more evidence, such as other objects that were manufactured by advanced technological civilizations within the orbit of the Earth around the sun. This is a question that we can address with hundreds of millions of dollars, get a, a, a clear answer to, uh, at least in terms of explaining objects that we already found that do not resemble rocks. And if we engage in that, there would be much more excitement about science. Young people are really excited about it. They get thousands of emails every week from people that would like to engage in this question, and some of which are worried about the prospects, if they are scientists, about the prospects for their career. And I also get a lot of donations from individuals that feel that this is an inspiring question, an inspiring vision that uh, humanity should pursue. So my point is, we will bring more funding to science and we will engage the public in a more meaningful way if we were to pursue this question. And by the way, it will have a huge impact on our future. Well, it's worth noting that the public is far more interested in the question of alien life than most scientists are these days. Thank you again, Dr. Lowe, for appearing with us. We're out of time, but we'll do this again sometime soon as the Galileo Project forms up. Thank you so much. And I, I, I will be glad to report about anything we find. Yep. Good luck.